actually the leap of faith, to give it the memorable name that Soren Kierkegaard bestowed upon it, is an imposture. As he himself pointed out, it is not a leap that can be made once and for all. It is a leap that has to go on and on being performed in spite of mounting evidence to the contrary. This effort is actually too much for the human mind and leads to delusions and manias. Religion understands perfectly well that the leap is subject to sharply diminishing returns, which is why it often doesn't in fact rely on faith at all, but instead corrupts faith and insults reason. You are listening to A Leap of Doubt, the podcast that celebrates science, secular humanism, and the courage it takes to embrace an evidence-based life of doubt and questioning. This week's Doubter of the Week is Marian Evans, born Mary Ann Evans, November 22nd, 1819, died December 22nd, 1880. Most people today know her by her pen name, George Eliot, and she is mostly remembered for her work as a Victorian novelist, but she also made important contributions to free thought. Born and raised on a farmstead in Derbyshire, England, Mary Ann embraced religious evangelicalism as an adolescent, but then she was exposed to free thought and skepticism when she came across a book entitled An Inquiry Concerning the Origins of Christianity, written by one Charles Hennel. He was the brother-in-law to Charles Bray, a friend of Evans's family. This book, a systematic analysis of the Gospels as flawed historical documents, led young Marianne to make her own critical inquiries into religion. She tracked down Hennel's references and spoke with friends who also doubted. In her early 20s, she openly rejected Christianity and stopped attending church. Because of this, her father refused to live with her and threatened to send her away from home. Mary Ann's relationship with her father remained deeply strained. When her father died in 1849, Mary Ann, now 30, experienced a new kind of liberation. She traveled to Geneva, where she lived for a year before returning to England and settling in London. It was at this time that she began referring to herself as Marian Evans and set to work on the monumental task of translating German scholar David Friedrich Strauss's Das Leben Jesu Kritisch Berbeitet, Life of Jesus Critically Examined. This book, published in Germany in 1835, had captured the attention of the intelligentsia of Europe, with painstakingly detailed and comprehensive commentary on every aspect of the life and miracles of Jesus as reported in the New Testament Gospels. Strauss opposed both the theologians who believed in supernatural miracles and the rationalist school of thought, which regarded biblical miracles as the literary result of mistaken or faulty perception. Strauss argued instead that the miraculous elements in the Gospels were mythical additions developed by the early church in order to present the Jesus character as a messiah in fulfillment of ancient Jewish prophecy. When Evans's translation of Strauss's book into English was published anonymously in 1846, it sent shockwaves through the English-speaking world. The Earl of Shaftesbury at the time, Anthony Ashley Cooper, called Evans's translation, quote, the most pestilential book ever vomited out of the jaws of hell, unquote. Now, I obviously can't speak to how Marion might have felt about this review, but if I were to write a book and 
received such a glowing review from someone so invested in paying lip service to closed-minded religious orthodoxies, I would be very pleased. This kind of animus expressed toward the book speaks volumes to the great extent to which devout English society felt threatened by new knowledge. I myself have read this translation of Strauss's Life of Jesus and consider it one of my all-time favorite books. Marion translated other great works of biblical criticism and religious skepticism, and it's interesting to look at these as an indication of the intellectual geography she was traversing, the kind of thought that most influenced her and motivated her to make accessible to more people. She began translating Dutch philosopher Baruch Spinoza's Tractatus Theologico-Politicus, but unfortunately never finished. She did, however, complete a translation of Spinoza's Ethics later in life, although it wasn't published in her lifetime. Then in 1854, she sent another shockwave through the English-speaking world when she completed and published her translation of Ludwig Feuerbach's Essence of Christianity, the only book she ever published under her own name. In this book, first written in German in 1841, Feuerbach suggested that the human sense of the divine, this sort of universally felt religious impulse, uh, is not necessarily incompatible with a godless universe. That if in fact there is no higher power ordering our lives, then what we call God is a human projection of our own divinity or potential. Her translation of Feuerbach was well-received among free-thinking intellectuals of her day, and as a result, she was offered the position of assistant editor of the Westminster Review, the influential left-wing journal founded by John Stuart Mill. One of her most famous essays, published in Westminster Review in October 1855, was a scathing critique of Reverend John Cumming, a popular evangelical preacher in Great Britain. This essay is near and dear to my godless journalist heart. I will read now an excerpt so you understand what I mean. Even the scientific or literary lecturer, if he is dull or incompetent, may see the best part of his audience quietly slip out one by one. But the preacher is completely master of the situation. No one may hiss, no one may depart. Like the writer of imaginary conversations, he may put what imbecilities he pleases into the mouths of his antagonists, and swell with triumph when he has refuted them. He may riot in gratuitous assertions, confident that no man will contradict him. He may exercise perfect free will in logic and invent illustrative experience. He may give an evangelical edition of history with the inconvenient facts omitted. All this he may do with impunity, certain that those of his hearers who are not sympathizing are not listening. For the press has no band of critics who go the round of the churches and chapels and are on the watch for a slip or defect in the preacher to make a feature in their article. The clergy are practically the most irresponsible of all talkers. For this reason, at least, it is well that they do not always allow their discourses to be merely fugitive, but are often induced to fix them in that black and white in which they are open to the criticism of any man who has the courage and patience to treat them with thorough freedom of speech and pen. 
Beginning in the late 1850s, Marion Evans turned to writing poetry and novels under the nom de plume George Eliot. Her first complete novel, Adam Bade, was an instant success upon publication in 1859. This was followed by The Mill on the Floss in 1860 and Silas Marner in 1861. She traveled to Italy to research her historical novel, Romola, which she wrote and published in 1863. She also visited Spain as part of her research for her longest poem, The Spanish Gypsy, an ode to scientific rationalism which took her four years to write. With the publication of her novel Middlemarch in 1871, she was finally able to achieve financial independence. Annie Laurie Gaylor, in her book Women Without Superstition, notes that strong female characters are featured in every one of Eliot's novels and, quote, include her humanist vision of the importance of the welfare of humanity in this world, unquote. And in her book Doubt, A History, Jennifer Michael Hecht writes, her novels center on the inner life and the mistakes of perception and expectation. Thus, she moved from an early role of quiet, brilliant evangelism to a later life as an investigator and a poet of the human. Unquote. This has been your Doubter of the Week. As always, thank you so much for listening, and a very special thanks to each one of my patrons, Jeff Prebeg, Jeannie Eichard, Chris Watson, Torsten Pill, Kim Boschkovsky, and Freethinker215. The support of each and every one of you means the world to me. Hello and welcome to A Leap of Doubt, your weekly dose of skeptical and curious thinking about all kinds of issues. I'm your host, Nathan Dickey. Thank you for joining me. I have a guest co-host joining me for this episode as well, my friend and former colleague from the dearly departed Trolling with Logic podcast, Wolf McNamara. Wolf, how are things going for you? Oh, things are going great. Thanks for hosting this, Nathan. I'm really glad to be here. I know this is one of your... uh What's the word? Pet topics or one of your hobby wheels or wheelhouses? I guess it would be a topic of interest for me because after graduating college, I mean, I got a bachelor's degree in history. So when I started TWL, I had to pick a subject I was good in. And since we were focusing on creationists and debunking Christian apologists, I dive straight into like the biblical history and what didn't match actual history. So that's where I found my role. Great. Well, you're right at home in this episode. This week, we are doubting the historical existence of a man you may have heard about, Jesus. Ever since critical biblical scholarship began in the 18th century, largely a product of the Enlightenment, the consensus among mainstream historians and religious scholars has been that a man named Jesus did historically exist in Palestine and was crucified by the Romans in the first decades of the Common Era. Although these biblical critics did doubt and challenge the reality of the New Testament's portrait of Jesus as a miracle worker and divinely appointed savior, they did think, or more precisely assume, that there actually was a real man named Jesus, upon whom theological legends were later based. But there has always been another school of thought, 
The mythicists argued that not only was the Christ of faith a theological fantasy, but the Jesus of history was also a fiction. Jesus never even existed historically. Uh, so that's the question we are discussing in this week's episode. Did Jesus exist as a historical figure? Joining me as my special guest is David Fitzgerald, an author and historical researcher who has been actively investigating the historical Jesus question for over 20 years. He has a degree in history and was an associate member of the Committee for the Scientific Examination of Religion, or CSER. He has authored five books, including Nailed, Ten Christian Myths That Show Jesus Never Existed at All, and the three-volume work Jesus, Mything in Action. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Our pleasure. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this with us. I can't wait. It sounds like it's going to be an awesome show. I'm going to start a slightly different way than I have scripted here, because today, as of this recording, it is International Blasphemy Day. It- is International Blasphemy Day. Perfect timing. Can we cuss yep. on this podcast? <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, happy fucking Blasphemy Day. Christ on a crutch. Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. So yeah, I was just going to throw out there, do any of you want to blaspheme for fun a little bit before... Uh, oh, uh, I'm sorry I was busy drawing a picture of Muhammad just now. Sorry. We'll have to I was okay. doing the same damn thing. <laughs> Does anybody have a like a blasphemous joke to like kick us off? We, we could be going all day. Actually, I want to ask Wolf a quick question. In Ireland, is the blasphemy laws been repealed yet? Has that, is that still a thing? I don't think it has. I might be wrong about that. Yeah. Um, as far as I know, it's still, uh, some speech it may still be a bit sensitive due to, you know, the religious community being so af- easily offended. Right, right, yeah. It's kind of shocking to realize that's still on the books over there. But, you know, we can't really throw stones from our glass house these days, <laughs> politics-wise. Yeah, especially considering that, was it just recently that Ireland abolished the anti-abortion law? It sure did. How massive was that? I know, yeah. right? And so, how underwhelming was the uh, reception to the Pope last time he was there, too? Mm-hmm. Oh, man, that made me so happy. <laughs> <laughs> There's something about a country that's under the thumb of religious authoritarianism for so long that makes people kind of tired of it after a while. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Ireland still has its issues. I mean, there's still a big anti-homosexual sentiment throughout a lot of the country. A good friend of mine who was gay. Well, he's no longer with us due to he committed suicide because he wasn't well connected or well well accepted, I should say, yeah. by family and friends. Ah, oh, that breaks my heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this is why we fight. Yes. Absolutely. Fight the good fight. So, uh, I guess getting into the subject, I want to start by raising a question which some of my listeners might have on their mind. Um, I know I did at first way back a few years ago when I first learned about the mythicist school of thought, and that is, why should the historical Jesus debate matter specifically to atheists and agnostics? Why is it important and relevant to those of us who are atheists, or at least agnostics, who do not believe in the Bible? Like, a lot of atheists and agnostics might say, well, of course, none of us actually believe the stories and legends about Jesus, but, you know... We but that's not think, the real Jesus, anyway, and, and we don't yeah, care. Like, <laughs> it's like, why uh, Why should we worry whether there was one or not? 
when I first wrote Nailed in 2010, that was a constant refrain I got from people saying, oh, I know he wasn't the son of God, but I'm sure there was a real guy. And other people saying, you know, who cares? Who gives a rat's whether there was a real Jesus or not? And the funny thing about it is that's not a bad argument. Who cares if there was a Jesus is a perfectly fine answer. The funny thing is, though, when you decide for whatever reason to go look into the historical Jesus, and for me it was just simply being an atheist and trying to parse out what's real in the gospel stories and what's the legendary mythology that got put on later. Once you try to parse those two things out, it gets very sticky very fast and all these red flags start pulling up to where quickly it gets to be, we should all be agnostics about Jesus right from the gate. But what makes it important for atheists, and I continue to say this to atheists, is everything we learn in the back and forth between the historicists who say there had to have been a Jesus and the mythicists who say, no, I don't think there was a Jesus at all. Everything we learn in the back and forth of that helps us better call the bluff of the Christians who are clear over there on the other side, assuming that, yeah, there was a Jesus, and he tells us how to think and how to behave and how to vote. Um, (laughs) If nothing else, we know that our sources for Jesus, whether there was a real Jesus or not, are so bad that no one can say without fooling themselves that they know what Jesus really said or did. That's a great point. My take is regarding the question whether should we really care or does it really matter if there was a Jesus or not? Like David already said, that's a fair point. Sure. I mean, I stopped believing in Jesus primarily because, you know, I was reading the Old Testament and I found out for myself that there's no way he could have been the Messiah. And that for me was the end of of my Christianity uh, faith. Yeah, yeah. And there's so many reasons why somebody could or could not give a rat's about Jesus, whether he's a real person or not. For me personally, I don't try to interest any atheists who aren't interested in the topic. But for me, it's fascinating to see where this huge enchilada called Christianity actually came from. And I don't think we can really know anything about the origins of Christianity until we start taking seriously what our sources for Jesus say and how reliable they are. Yeah, I completely agree. And the reason I think it's an important question to at least think about and read up on for atheists is that as critical thinkers and skeptics, we should be interested in and invested in reality and the truth behind claims. And that includes historical claims. Absolutely. That is perfectly well said. I just want to say, you know, people accuse me of being a mythicist as if it's this dogmatic label I've stuck on myself. It's like, I'm only a mythicist because, you know, not because I care one way or another if there was a Jesus or not. It's no skin off my nose. I'd still be a happy atheist. It's not like Christianity is going to start making sense if there was a real Jesus. (laughs) But for me, that's where the evidence points. That's making the best sense of the evidence we have and how it's portrayed, how, how the texts read, how Christianity plays out in the first century and the second century. The reason why it's important for me is, since I studied uh, this field, and as historians in general, I think it's important for us to maintain a a sense of integrity. None of the evidence that we have points to a Jesus, and yet the vast academia and the population as a whole embraces that everything we know about Jesus is grounded in solid facts, but we don't know that. And... That's why we need to have this debate. We need to have this discussion. Mm -hmm. And this isn't even a fight between historicists and mythicists, because there's plenty of historicists out there who acknowledge that, 
you know, this shouldn't even be controversial to question because our evidence for him is so bad and there's so many different Jesus is on display for us. It says, what does it even mean to say Jesus really existed when we can't even pin down what he is and what he did? And if you get 50 secular scholars in the room, they'll be talking about 50 different Jesuses. Yeah, so I guess this would be a good lead-in for asking why, in fact, do most biblical scholars and historians, including secular biblical scholars and historians who have no religious faith of any kind, accept the historicity of Jesus why is that the consensus? And that's a great question, and it's one I spend a lot of time answering in Jesus Mything in Action. And the actual fact is, there is no consensus on Jesus. And that's part of the problem, is that we've gone through all these so-called historical quests over the last hundred years. We've gone through all these different criteria of authenticity to see what sticks and what doesn't for Jesus' story. And we've just basically come out of the third of these historical quest and realizing that all our tools don't do the job. And so we've gone back to square one yet again. And I can't think of any other field of history where the more we study the subject, the less we know about it. It's completely unprecedented. And I talk about that in Jesus Myth and Action. What's the reason for that? And I say, maybe the question shouldn't be, why are so many historians rejecting mythicism, but how many of those historians are contractually obligated to reject mythicism? And I think that's probably one of the biggest bombshells that Jesus Mything in Action provides, is that we actually we didn't do a survey. We actually did a complete census of every single institution in America that offers any kind of New Testament studies, Jesus studies, any relevant study in the field, and asked them, okay, how many of you are religious organizations, you know, religiously affiliated, and how many of you require your scholars to toe an academic line, a theological line, as a condition of being employed? And it just totally dovetails with what things like Richard Carrier's found, where he knows many historical scholars who have serious doubts about whether there was a real Jesus, even if they're not openly mythicists, or, you know, they're either might be just agnostic, or they might completely be convinced that there was no Jesus, and yet they will not touch that subject with a 10-foot pole precisely because of the bluster and the bluffing and the intimidation that they're getting from the religious scholars. It's doubly ironic that the same people who accuse science of having this big evolution and big science suppressing creationism, they're the same ones who fund theological historical studies. They threaten institutions with pulling their money if they don't toe the line. And I've got case study after case study in the book of not just atheists, but actual Bible-believing, devout Christian scholars who have gotten into hot water for not towing that theological line on things far less blasphemous than questioning Jesus' existence. In preparation for this topic, I read Bart D. Ehrman's 2012 book, Did Jesus Exist? And I was just, well, disappointed for one thing, yes. but yeah, but just kind of astounded at the difference in tone with this book versus his other books. Yeah, and it's amazing to me because I feel the exact same way. I'm a huge Bart Ehrman fan, but it's so clear he just phoned this one in because we weren't expecting him to agree with us, but we were expecting that this would be the best defense of historicity and would at least clear out the deadwood from all the crappy mythicism theories that are out there. Just because their mythicism doesn't make them right, and there is a lot of bad mythicism out there. But that's not what he did. 
he pretty much phoned it in and did a half-assed job. And I feel like he just banged it out in a weekend while he was doing work on a forgery and counterforgery, which is a huge brick of a book and is brilliant. And it's very interesting, too, is to read the books he's written since then, Jesus Before the Gospels and How Jesus Became God. You see him realizing that things he took as established fact when he wrote Did Jesus Exist are not as clear as and well-defined and well-established as he assumed they were. And you see him backing away from his position on that. And again, I love Bart Ehrman, and I think he's, for a such a staunch historicist, he makes some of the best mythicist arguments out there. And a lot of times he seems to be sitting on a, a, a tree branch that he already sawed off a long time ago. And his work on forgery in the Bible, on, on the different sects, the orthodox corruption of Scripture, all these things. Jesus Interrupted, Misquoting Jesus. These are all brilliant books. These are all must-reads. And they all shine light on the skeletons in the closet in biblical history and how much bluff and bluster goes on in those fields. Well, when you mentioned uh, bluff and bluster before in regards to, or in the context of mainstream academia, religious scholarship, kind of being a juggernaut of historicism, forcing non-tenured professors at least to toe the theological or historical consensus line on the history of Jesus, that's what I thought of, because Bart Ehrman in One of the things that made this particular book so different from all his others is that he didn't really speak or write like a real historian in that he repeatedly made statements like, Jesus certainly existed. Right. Or we certainly know this and this and this, and we certainly know that he was real. Seems like the words certainly in that context shouldn't be used by a historian. Absolutely. And it's so funny to see how often you see that, not just from Bart, who's one of the better historians out there, but especially from religious affiliated scholars who are constantly saying things that blow my mind, and then immediately following up with, but of course, but despite this, we know Jesus existed, and they, they run back and touch the totems so everybody knows they're still on the same team. Yeah, it's biblical scholars and scholarship that's throwing all these, you know, exposing all these cracks in the theory. It's like evolution. It's like Charles Darwin didn't come down from Mount Sinai with the origin of species in his hands. You know, the cracks were showing for a long time beforehand, and it's exactly the same thing with Jesus myth. Yeah, just like how Charles Darwin once believed that whales evolved from bears. Yeah, he was wrong about that. But he was right in his prediction that humanity came from, like, Africa. Exactly, and so many other things. And what's more is that even if Charles Darwin had you know, been drowned on the Beagle trip, we still would have evolution because there were already other people making those connections, like Lord Wallace. He just did a really good job of dotting his I's and crossing his T's and showing, yeah, look, this is it in action, and we've got the facts to prove it. Yeah, Alfred Wallace was the leading expert in the field at the time, even more recognized than Darwin. Right. The reason why Darwin gets the credit is because Darwin's the one that came, coined the term natural selection. Right. Well, there's also the shitty luck that Wallace had with uh, him losing all of his work in the storm on his return trip from the uh, what's it, the Amazon jungle. There was a storm at sea that in which lost he basically lost all his work. Yeah. That single incident was one significant reason why he didn't get to publish before Darwin. And if I may add, to touch on what we were discussing a bit, why certain... Uh, Professors and historians haven't taken the mythicism side seriously. 
It's certainly a big chunk of them are, you know, on a payroll and they want to they don't want to lose their job. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. But the other part of it is that, yes, there were a lot of bad mythicist arguments in the past. Oh, sure. Absolutely. That's why modern historians are like, wasn't this debunked a long time ago? Didn't we settle this? So they haven't heard the newer, more, yes, more better scholarly arguments for mythicism. Absolutely true. And nothing drives me more crazy than hearing somebody quote some Victorian source that's completely debunked or Joseph mm-hmm. Atwell doing his, his shtick about it was all a Roman invention where they have to ignore decades, if not centuries, of religious evolution to make these claims that are just out there. That's why I was really disappointed that Bart Ehrman cited authors like Akaria S. and yes, Kersey yes. Graves as representative of the mythicist right. school of thought. Right. Whereas, Didn't he also I mean, source J.A. Wells? Possibly, but he's not even as out there as some of those ones we've just mentioned. But the thing is, 30 years ago, everyone was convinced that Moses and Abraham existed. Now, that's it's consensus. Yo, no, there's no way those guys existed. And that's well established. It's, you know, today's blasphemy is tomorrow's consensus. And we've seen that play out time and time again, especially in religious history, especially in Jesus studies. Let's dive right into some of the reasons why we could say, we could argue plausibly that there was no historical Jesus. Broadly speaking, the mythicist argument is two-pronged, or at least it seems that way to me. One prong of the argument is a negative argument, basically pointing out that there's a conspicuous absence of early and reliable witnesses that even mentions the historical Jesus, which we would expect to see if, in fact, such a personage existed. And the second, more positive prong of the argument is that the story of Jesus appears to have been modeled after stories told about other pagan divine godmen. Let's begin with the first prong. What is the state of the early witness evidence for the uh, historical Jesus? Non-existent. Well, yeah, non-existence. Um, I don't want to overstate the argument from silence, because a lot of people seem to treat arguments of silence as if it's a fallacy and not an actual argument. It's not simply a question of, we don't have good evidence for Jesus. It's that. That is definitely the case. But what's also the case is that what evidence we do have points in a different direction. It's not saying what Christians wish it had said. And we see throughout Christian history that they've changed the wording of their own scriptures, that they've interpreted their scriptures in such a way that it means something very different than what it originally said. In Nailed, the penultimate chapter in that book is called, Can Jesus Be Saved? And in that, I lay out all the things that would have to be different in the New Testament, in early Christian history, in the way that the Roman Empire was in the first and second century. All the things that would have to be different for me to even be able to think, well, yeah, there probably was a guy named Jesus, and not an allegorical theological figure that seems to be completely mythic. We've got two kinds of Christianities in the beginning. We've got Christianity before and after the Gospel of Mark was written. And after the Gospel of Mark was written, all of a sudden we have slews of 
what's deemed to be biographical information. They never say that they're eyewitnesses. It's more hagiography, and it's highly allegorical, especially when you go back to the, the original one, which was Mark. But before that, before Mark, in the earliest Christians that we know about, the movements with Paul, with whoever wrote the epistle to the Hebrews in the New Testament, whoever wrote these was preaching a very different and believing in a very different Jesus than the one that we get in the Gospels. And that's been a very weird red flag for mythicists ever since that was discovered. Because uh, the writings of Paul, of course, as every scholar agrees, came long before any of Gospel. Long before. Might even be generations before. Because our earliest Gospel, Mark, the earliest it could have been written seems to have been right after the Jewish War with Rome, around the year 74, 40 years or so after Jesus was meant to have been killed, um, long after any of his friends and family would have still been alive, most likely, and clearly long after Jerusalem had totally gone Mad Max. But here's the thing about that. Robert Price pointed this out to me recently. That's simply the oldest part of the Gospel of Mark goes back to that early. So, our Gospel of Mark may have been written even much later. We definitely know the later Gospels, like Matthew and Luke and John, are pushing the second century, if not the mid-second century. When Luke writes his Gospel, he's already saying that so many people are out there writing Gospels now, it seemed a good idea for me to go check out the real story. And then, of course, he just, he rips off Matthew and Mark's story, and that's his investigation. He's the only one even pretending to be writing a history. This is interesting. I did not know this before reading your book, or I had not come across it in my own scant reading of the subject, but that Luke actually plagiarizes and rips off from Josephus. Absolutely. And the way we know that he's ripping off Josephus and not the other way around is because he doesn't do a great job of it. He's not a great historian, despite him saying that he's a great historian right at the beginning of the book. And Christians wish he was. It's the mistakes he makes that shows that he was a bad historian and stealing bits from Josephus for window dressing. And he's stealing from a book that was written in about the year 94, 95. So there's no way his gospel was written before that. So it's like Luke might be considered the first historical novelist in a, in a way. <laughs> Definitely the book of Acts is a historical novel, for sure. And the gospels as well. The gospels are so allegorical. Mark's gospel even tells us right out of the bat, it seems that he's giving this nod to the reader like, okay, I preach in parables so that you'll know what's really happening. But to other people outside, I, I hide my teachings in parables so that, get this, so that they won't understand what I'm saying. Otherwise, they would turn from their sins and be saved. And that's still in our Gospel of Mark, Mark 4.11. That makes no damn sense for the, the Jesus we grew up with, but it makes perfect, absolute perfect sense if the Jesus of Paul and from that first those first generations of Christianity was a mystery faith deity. And that's exactly what people like me, Robert Price, and Richard Carrier think, that Christianity began as a Jewish version of the mystery faiths. Before we get into fleshing out more about the mystery faiths, I wonder if we can explore a little bit further the allegorical elements of Mark and the ways in which Mark, in much the same way that Luke derived a lot of his details from Josephus and mangled them, Mark actually was heavily influenced by Homer and other Greek influences, and maybe we can bring up some examples of why we know that's the case. Sure. Though I should point out that primarily his sources, and we're talking about Mark now, primarily his sources were the Hebrew scriptures. And 
where Matthew, when he steals from Mark, he goes out of his way and says, oh, and this was done in fulfillment of the scriptures, blah, 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 which say this, this, this. Mark does the exact same thing, only he never connects the dots. He expects his readers to either know what he's talking about or to accept it as a good story and not realize that he's ripping off the Psalms or the book of Zechariah or fill in the blank. Often taking details that aren't even meant to be a prophecy, let alone anything about the Messiah, and using it to create his story. Uh, sorry to backtrack, but there was one thing I wanted to mention about when we were talking about Paul. I wanted to uh, uh, share with the readers a couple of things while we uh, know that Paul, when he was writing the uh, writing his Gospels, he never witnessed an earthly Jesus. Okay, He uh, says that he the only experience he had with Jesus was through a vision. And he tells us that was the same case for the earliest congregations. We have like an Acts 19.6 and 21.9 through 10 says, God revealed the secrets of the gospel through the Spirit. I believe also in 1 Corinthians 2.10. Likewise, in Romans 12.6, Paul says Christians in all congregations have gifts differing according to the grace that was given to us. If it be prophecy, let us prophecy according to the proportion of our faith. And Paul indicates that these prophets were communicating with spirits which were under the prophet's control in right. 1 Corinthians 14. Right. Not only that, but he says repeatedly that people would not know about Jesus unless it was for prophets like him, and what he calls apostles. And it's very interesting when you ask him what an apostle is, what he describes is somebody who encountered Jesus. It's not just through a vision, but through visions and through studying the scripture that he's speaking to them through the ancient Hebrew scriptures. They're hearing the voice of Jesus. And even in later Christians like Clement of Rome, we have him quoting Jesus, but all he's doing is quoting Old Testament scriptures. Another interesting thing, you're totally right that he never had any encounter with an earthly Jesus, never tells us anything about an earthly Jesus. But what's more, even though we are used to thinking of the leaders of the Jerusalem church, Peter, James, and John, as being friends and family of Jesus, Paul doesn't treat them as that. Just a few verses after he calls James the brother of the Lord, he questions if these guys are real Christians. He constantly opposes them. He fights with them completely, says he didn't give in to them for a minute, never treats them as though they have any closer connection to Jesus than he does. And again, he never uses the word disciples. He never calls them disciples. He, he never uses that word in any context. When he talks about apostles, he's talking about guys like him who read the spirit of Jesus in the scriptures. He's very explicit about that. Apostles would then be uh, people who have read and understood the mysteries or uh, have Absolutely. experienced visions. They're like the modern-day Bible coders, the people who read Old Testament and believe there's a hidden message in there, so they right. believe God's trying to secretly speak to them through, uh, like, through the lines. Absolutely. That's exactly what's happening. And again, that's the only definition he gives us for apostles, is people like him who can work miracles and do things in that sense. He never even gives us that story that Luke gives us three times about having a vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul never says anything remotely like that. In fact, most of the facts that we supposedly know about Paul come from Luke, and oftentimes they're directly, explicitly contradicted by Paul in his own writings. Given the fact that, as you just talked about, Paul was very hostile to 
the Jerusalem leaders, right. Peter, James, and John, and actually dismissive of them and treated them as nobodies. Where did this line about James being the brother of Jesus come from in the first place? There's one spot in Galatians where he says something to the effect of, I didn't see any apostles, I only saw James the brother of the Lord. And there's multiple problems with this. First of all, as I said, just a few lines later, he's acting like these are guys are nobodies and not even real Christians, and not treating them as if he thought they were the brother of the Lord. What it seems to be saying, some people question whether that's just an interpolation, but we've got better reasons to reject it. These brothers of the Lord seems to be a title, not a description of a physical brother, because he mentions other brothers of the Lord, like the 500 who had a vision of Jesus at Pentecost, like the brethren of the Lord who are allowed to take wives with them. He complains about them. At no point does he seem to treat James as an actual brother of Jesus. It wouldn't make sense if he did have that close of an association, given all the council disputes in the book of Acts. Absolutely. And it's funny because Luke's writing in Acts, he whitewashes over all these differences and tries to make it look like they're all on the same team and shook hands and and went after. And he whitewashes also all of the disputes that were tearing apart the early church that supposedly Jesus had already settled during mm-hmm. the Gospels, about circumcision, about taking meals with unkosher meals, eating with unbelievers, all these things that were huge debates. Yeah, you know, a hundred years later, Jesus supposedly had already ruled on them. So, where was this coming from? Yeah, this was the point I was most interested in. If Jesus, the Jesus as described in the Gospels, really did exist, yeah. As close as he was alleged to have lived to the time of Paul, they would have just appealed to what Jesus declared on the matter instead of arguing about it for a long time. And Paul wouldn't be contradicting Jesus on things he's taught either. Yeah, as I say in Nailed, why doesn't Paul ever say, what would Jesus do? (laughs) Why does Luke have to uh, make up a story about a vision of eating uh, clean or versus unclean foods in order to settle the issue? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and why does everyone have to, like, contradict about uh, who was associated with Jesus? Like like David pointed out, the 500, like that number is not acknowledged or shared by anyone else. It's like as if that number was just pulled out of thin air. Nobody gives us any names, where they came from, what they right, saw, how right. old they were. I mean, was were they even sober? Was this like like one big Woodstock where everyone exactly. was just partying out? Like, what was going on? We right. They give us nothing. So it's, and, and Richard Carrier points out that the word for Pentecost and the word for 500 are only different by about one letter, and he's thinking that Paul never was even describing a group of 500 men, but all the men who were at the Pentecost. Because another problem with that whole Pentecost story is there were only supposed to be about 100 Christians all total in the whole world at that time. You know, tells us that just a few verses before that, all of a sudden these 500 appear. As you say, with no names, no way to determine who they are. No identity Um, whatsoever. None whatsoever. At best, this is very piss-poor journalism. (laughs) Thank you. And you know, that's an important point to make, too, is that 
all these things that are gospels, you hear people like Lee Strobel and Josh McDowell refer to them as, oh, these are eyewitness biographies of Jesus. No, they are nothing of the sort. They don't even claim to be that. Luke is the only one who even claims to be a historian doing historical work, and that's a lie because we can totally see where he's stolen from Matthew and Mark. Christians will try to say, well, well, by ancient historical standards, he's a fine historian. No, even by ancient historical standards, he's a shitty historian. Um, oh, and- really bad. He's really, really bad. Really bad. And it's like, Ancient historical standards and our standards were the same standard. It wasn't magically, we're not being racist by saying, oh, we're so much better about it now. No, they did the exact same thing. The good historians in the ancient world would talk about who their sources were, how much they trusted them. If they had multiple sources that were conflicting with each other, they'd give us, they'd give us all this information. And all the historians that we have from the first world do that to a greater or lesser extent. And that's how we rate who the good ones are and who the bad ones are. I've also made this other point regarding the 500. I don't know if you ever mentioned this in your book, said David, or if anyone else has. But I noticed this uh, pattern. I used to work at the Museum of Tolerance, which is the uh-huh. Holocaust Museum. Yes. And before we're allowed to give tours and just share history with the public, we are given like three months of training and just history lessons and making sure we answer all the relevant questions that are always given. And one of them was, yeah. how did this happen? How did this happen in Europe? You know, how did people let let this uh, come to be. And there was this one lesson I remember. We were told how the Nazi group started. And they did start off as like a, a very small, fringe, nobody cared about sort of group. Yeah. But no I took seriously. Yeah, who's that sound like? Yeah. Yeah. But this is how they gained some sort of a foot in the door. If you yeah. were seduced by the Nazi ideology or rhetoric and you wanted to sign up, they would give you a number. Let's say you signed up and they gave you a number. You are number 587. The truth was, you were only the 87th member to join. They just made up an extra 500 members to look like they uh, were bigger than they appeared. That's too funny. (laughs) That's too funny. Yeah, so maybe that is how the mystery cult of early Christians uh, basically got a foot in the door. It's interesting to know that there's even contradiction within the same books, often, of the New Testament. And here's another thing. We treat the Bible like it's this one big monolithic book. And of course it's not. The New Testament is its own squirrely mess of books. And we don't really know who wrote most of them. Even the letters of Paul, at least half of them we know we're not written by him. Some of them may or may not reflect what he really thought, but some of them are just right out generations later saying things that the real Paul never said. Pseudography and uh, pseudomonity, uh, that, that's, that's yeah. what we call people who wrote ancient forgeries. Right. And Christians try to tell us, oh, well, no, that's nothing to be worried about because that was a, a badge of honor in the ancient world to, to write under a famous <laughs> name. Bart Ehrman says that is such bullshit. And it's like he cites all these ancient sources where it's like, yeah, they did not believe that at all. They f- felt just as badly as we do about the situation. Yeah. Just letting the audience know, us mythicists, we respect Ehrman in so many ways. I mean, he is a Absolutely. really great scholar. So Absolutely. he may not declare himself a mythicist, even though that he does give like the best mythicist arguments. He's not, you know, <laughs> there Absolutely. yet. He's not there yet, but, but he know, is a great he is a great scholar, and we're just is. disappointed with his book. It was just that one book did sure. Jesus exist. That was just very lousy. 
I do want to echo that and say that Bart Ehrman has done more than any other religious scholar to popularize the problems of the Bible to the general public. Absolutely. Amen to that. Yes, that is so true. Who knows what he's going to be saying in 10 years? Because as I said, he seems to keep going closer and closer to making the connection that these things are a bluff at best. An outright lie at worst. The first time I read Bart Ehrman's books, I bought him in a library uh, right outside at Cambridge. Yeah, so I thought that, where was this uh, being taught? This was when I was oh, in college yeah. at the time. Yeah. And the funny enough, the next year, when I was taking this big history seminar, it's like one of the big three that you have to pass in order to uh, get your degree. Uh-huh. I can't I just really wish I remember my professor's name, but on day one she just was making a lot of statements, a lot of points, but one of them I remember succinctly, she just held up a Bible and she just told us, Keep this in mind, this is not a history book. <laughs> it's so true. So true. I wanted to get into something that we've mentioned a couple times, dive more into detail about what the mystery cults were and what we know about them. So what was happening in the first century in the first century BC is that we had this Hellenistic movement of religions called the mystery faiths or the mystery cults. And what they were basically is they were kind of a spinoff from Alexander the Great's policy, this tolerance policy for the captured countries in his empire. He sort of incorporated all their gods into this one big super pantheon so that after a while, the idea of pantheons themselves was kind of old passe. We didn't talk about, you know, Zeus on Olympus anymore. That was the old thing. What people were excited about is this newly rebooted religious movement called the Mystery Faiths, where we had personal saviors. And that's exactly how they referred to them, too. These were gods who lived in your heart and you walked with you and talked with you. And when you only saw one pair of footprints, that was where they carried you. You know, those were the kind of things that were happening. And all of them were rebooted pagan gods of some sort, like Mithras, like Isis, Egyptian gods, Persian gods, Anatolian gods, you name it. And when you looked at these religions, they focused on having a personal savior, a personal relationship with that god. They had all kinds of secret handshakes and different rites. And we know very little about them, but we know more than enough to see the resemblances between them and what Christianity was doing, both in their scriptures and in their rituals and in their iconography. And in fact, if you had gone in a time machine, which I do in book three of Jesus Mything in Action, and asked somebody, what's a mystery faith? They would tell you if they were willing to spill the secrets. And they said, okay, what would a Jewish version of the mystery faith look like? It would look just like early Christianity. Yeah, I make that point out to a lot of people who are new to mythicism or curious about it. You know, people who've probably watched the zeitgeist and heard it for the first time and got a really bad start on it, trying to make connections to to, uh, Jesus, to pagan gods. But I would argue Christianity as a mystery of faith is a spinoff of Judaism. So Jesus, he was more inspired by characters like Moses and Joshua. Absolutely. Than he was of like Osiris. Right. And same thing with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a new Elisha. And um, all these things were mixtures of pagan philosophy, like Philo of Alexandria. Paul uses mystery faith terms throughout his letters in ways that make it look like he's describing a mystery faith. 
on this point about the mystery faith that was Christianity being based off of or inspired by Jewish traditions, do you think there's anything to the claim made by most famously G.A. Wells, but others after him, that Jesus was a personification or an incarnation of the Jewish figure of wisdom, such as in the book of Proverbs or in the wisdom of Solomon? I do and I don't. I definitely think that the wisdom figure was one of many influences from Judaism on Christianity. I mean, it's very obviously that it is. Just like there's so many ideas that came out of Philo of Alexandria's philosophy that went straight into Christianity. He's a new Adam. He's a new Moses. He's a new Joshua. And Thomas Thompson, who's written The Messiah Myth, has shown that all these other Old Testament figures who are probably equally mythological, that Jesus is just copying in a pattern that we see over and over again. We see it in the suffering servant. We see it in what they call vindication of the innocent righteous one who suffers. They say, oh, the Jews would never invent a Messiah who suffered. Oh, yeah, they would. And they did. And they invented all other kinds of messiahs. And during the first century, you would have had Jewish groups who believed any number of different things about what the Messiah was going to look like and what he was going to do and accomplish. And we have a ton of messiahs on record from the early first century, over a dozen of them that I describe in uh, Jesus Mything in Action, including John the Baptist, including some of the more famous ones. And the interesting thing about all those guys is every single one of them is less interesting than our Jesus, and yet every <laughs> single one of them did something, pulled off something that our Jesus didn't, and that was get a notice in the historical record. Um, mm-hmm. And that's another huge red flag for our guy. You mentioned Philo of Alexandria, and you cite him in your book as one of the people who wrote history at the time who definitely would have taken notice of Jesus Absolutely. had he existed. Oh, he definitely would have. Absolutely. And you know what's funny is they portray the Pharisees as these bad guys and hypocrites. Pharisees would have loved a dude like Jesus. They have the verse like, oh, he doesn't teach as the scribes and Pharisees do, but blah, blah, blah. No, yeah, he does. In fact, several of the teachings that Jesus gives are ripped off from the Pharisees. They hated the Sadducees. They hated those fat cat Roman temple guys. They would never have been in cahoots with them. They would have loved somebody like Jesus. Yeah, everything about the whole trial and the whole oh. facing the Pharisee, none of it, none makes of sense. it, none of it sense. matches the Mishrash or any of the uh, old Pharisee law, any of their procedures. None of this adds up. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit more about that because they oh, yeah. pile so fast, you can't even keep up with how bad it is. They break so many. Not even just that they're breaking the law, not even that they're just breaking customs, but it's like, this would never happen. Jews would not be doing this on a weekend. There was no reason for them to. So they didn't need to have secret trials in somebody's house, let alone the judge's house. If Jesus was really accused of this, and it was a the weekend, let alone a, a holy high holy day, they just would have put him in jail for the weekend and done the trial on Monday. And if he was really found a blasphemy, and there's nothing he says or does that qualifies is blasphemy under Jewish law, but if it did, they would have just taken him out and stoned him. But instead, we go mm-hmm. through all this dog and pony show, and <laughs> every single nothing in it makes any sense historically, but every single thing makes perfect sense allegorically. And talking about especially the custom of him. Pilate giving the choice between Jesus and Barabbas, that is so filled with allegorical content from start to finish that there's no way that's a real story, that there's no way that anything happened remotely like that. 
And mm-hmm. Christians for centuries have, have scoured Jewish and Roman records to try to find something that backs up what Mark is saying here. They've never found anything like that because it's ridiculous on the face of it. And I just want to point out, in case we have any listeners who, religious listeners who are just going to dismiss that and say, oh, that's just an angry atheist argument. I would highly urge them to read The Trial and Death of Jesus, the book by... Chaim Maccabee? Chaim Maccabee, yeah. He was the Attorney General of Israel and later Justice of the Israeli Supreme Court, who scrutinized all the different accounts in the Bible of Jesus' trial with an eye to how historically accurate it was based on ancient Jewish tradition. If there are listeners who are like dismissing all of this because of, oh, we're just projecting anger or something, especially regarding uh, when we just talked about about the trial being so full of allegory. You know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of the allegory of Judas. Yeah. The whole reason why Judas was a character is because Judas means Jew, and he betrayed the Messiah for money. Just like the fig tree that won't bear fruit, and so it gets destroyed, even though that story makes no sense, except as allegory. Can we go back to the statement you made earlier about how the trial of Jesus makes no sense historically, but it does make perfect sense allegorically? What are the uh, allegories embedded in that story? The most famous one is the story of Barabbas. So what happens is in the trial, after we've gone through all these crazy ahistorical things, they finally take him to Pilate and says, well, our law prevents us from killing him, which is not true. Totally killed him. Uh, But you need to do it. So he says, okay. So he says he has a tradition of on the Passover releasing a prisoner. Also not true. Romans didn't do that. Jews didn't do that. So he brings out this notorious anti-Roman rebel, insurrectionist, a murderer named Barabbas, and gives the people their choice. They can have Jesus, the guy who 12 hours earlier, the entire city of Jerusalem came out and acknowledged as their king and was so popular that the Pharisees were terrified that they'd have to do something about Jesus or they'd all be run out of town on a rail. Or this notorious Roman murderer. And for some reason, I don't know why the Pharisees were worried because just two minutes of spirited cheerleading later, they don't just have them choosing Barabbas, but they're howling for Jesus' blood. And so Jesus goes off to his execution. Barabbas is set free unharmed. Well, okay, none of that makes any damn sense at all, but if you take it as allegory, Barabbas in Aramaic means son of the father, and in fact, it even gets worse in some medieval Christian manuscripts. His name is Jesus Barabbas. So, we've got two Jesuses, two sons of the father. One is guilty of sedition and murder. One is perfect in every way. The one who's guilty of sedition and murder gets released into the wilderness unharmed. The one who's perfect is sacrificed for the sins of Israel. If you're not a Jewish listener, you may not realize that they're describing exactly the Yom Kippur ritual, where you have a scapegoat that bears the sins of Israel, those two exact sins, into the wilderness unharmed, where the perfect sacrifice, the perfect scapegoat, is Jesus, and he is sacrificed for the sins of Israel. Every single point of that lines up with the Yom Kippur story. None of it makes sense historically or even commonsensically. It makes no sense. And the allegory continues with the time and the day and time John chose to have Jesus die, which contradicts the other synoptic gospels. And it's fascinating because Every one of the evangelists who wrote their Gospels, they have reasons, theological reasons, to change the story 
to make it how they want it to be. Matthew's constantly improving on the mistakes of Mark's Jesus, for instance, including misquotes of scripture, inability to do things. Mark's Jesus is a very human Jesus, and Matthew doesn't like that. Luke likes it even worse, and John's not having any of it at all. (laughs) Not at all. He's a Superman without a Clark Kent by the time we get to John. And the differences that they have between each other aren't just mistakes in eyewitnesses. They're deliberate theological choices that they make to emphasize a point they want to make and fix what they think of as the one gospel. They're not setting out to write their gospel. They're setting out to write the gospel, every single one of them. And, of course, you have to make the gospel full of extraordinary events. If you look at the earliest gospel, like Mark, and then Matthew, and then Luke, and then John, you notice that the extraordinary events during the uh, crucifixion and the resurrection, there are more and more and more bigger extraordinary uh, events happening. This fits the definition of legend perfectly. Absolutely. Absolutely. The story grows with time and gets better and better. Yeah, our first Jesus is a very no-frills Jesus, for sure. What were you saying, Nathan? I was going to point out that isn't it John that has Jesus die as the Passover lamb on the Passover to make that theological point, whereas exactly. Mark has Jesus dying before the Passover. Right. They're both on a Friday, but one is the day before Passover, one's the day after Passover. So by that logic, they can't even be in the same year. And actually, it's funny, if you actually just look at like the last two weeks of Jesus' life in the four Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're called that because they're pretty much ripped off from each other. Synoptic means seen together. They follow Mark very closely, except when they're either in lockstep or they're completely taking it in, in opposite directions, incompatible directions. But John, his last two weeks of Jesus, his Jesus gets in trouble for raising Lazarus from the dead. And that gets him in such hot water that he can't hide it anymore. There's multitudes following him, and they say that's why he has to die. Well, that's fine and good, except Lazarus doesn't even appear in the other Gospels. That character doesn't even exist in the other Gospels, except as the name of a character in one of Luke's parables, Luke's Jesus' parables. And yet, this is supposed to be the motive for why he's killed in John. And again, these are just the four Gospels that made the cut. We have other early Christian Gospels that are even stranger, and the stories expanded even more with them, like the Gospel of Peter, which is this crazy buckets compared to ours, and yet not crazy at all. Oh, yeah. That is an understatement. (laughs) And yet, it's not that far-fetched compared to what the crazy things that are going on in the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of... David, you want to share with them what happens when Jesus comes out of the cave? In the Gospel of Peter, first, these two 250-foot-tall angels come. Jesus comes out of here, and he's 500 feet tall, this son of Godzilla. And the cross comes out of the tomb and starts talking to people. So you've got, (laughs) you know, Godzilla-sized Jesus on a talking cross. I wish that had made it into the Bible, because then there would probably be a movie about it. Right? Yeah. We we need to have that happen. Can there be, like, some sort of Life of Brian version of that, please? (laughs) <laughs> it, it almost writes itself as a as a comedy, yeah. But yeah, we totally should do that. Um, it, actually, it would be awesome if they did a movie version of all four gospels and just showed how they where they line up in lockstep and where they completely go their own way. Yeah, not like that Mel Gibson part that only focuses oh, on no. the few gruesome parts. Yep, and yeah, it's cherry picking, and a lot of it's not even coming from the Gospels. It's coming from this book by this Catholic nun, I think she was, mm-hmm. the Dolores Passion of Our Savior, in which he fights a dragon on the bridge. You know, yeah, she left that out. 
I want to go back to something you touched on briefly, which was this claim that, oh, no Jew in the first century or the second century uh, would have made up the idea of a suffering Messiah. Yeah. This is one of the claims that Bart Ehrman made in his book and made fairly strongly. I wonder if we can flesh out further with more detail, why is it the case that Jews of that time would, in fact, why is it plausible to say that they would, in fact, make up a suffering Messiah? Right. And we see this a lot, actually. Bart Ehrman's definitely not the worst one to do it where no Jew would ever do this. Certainly, this would never happen. We know for a fact, blah, 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 blah. And so often, when they're saying things like that, they're conflating like what they know about the first century with what we know about Jesus. It's like, yeah, you can't say that Jesus did this certainly because all Jews did that back then. You're, that's totally circular. Again, we don't even have to postulate. This is not a theory. We know they were saying this because we've got them uh, saying this, that they were taking the suffering servant of Isaiah. And while other Jews were looking for this military Messiah, you can't say that the Jews were this big amorphous blob that were all thinking the same thing because Judaism was never more diverse than in the first century. There was at least 18 factions that we have names for. So anything that had happened to Jerusalem during the first century, there would have been a group of Jews who said, oh yeah, we predicted this all along. Um, <laughs> and they did. And we have tons of false messiahs and suffering messiahs. And Richard Carey does a great job of this in his book on the historicity of Jesus, of showing, just tracing it out, how this comes from Daniel, this comes from Zechariah, all these different tropes and allegorical midrash that came folded into the Jesus story and in different Messiah stories. Yeah, pretty much all of the story arcs were like nitpicked. That we're not even getting into some of the evidence that's never brought up by Christians. There's early Christian writings, maybe late Jewish writings, called The Ascension of Isaiah. And in that story, the Messiah has to be killed as he's descending through these levels of heaven, the seven levels of heaven to get down to earth. And each one, he has to, to trick the demons of that world into crucifying him so that he can make it down the next level. Uh, you never hear Christians talking about that story, you know, or the, the Jesus that shows up in there. Sounds like a D&D campaign I once played. It, doesn't it? Yeah. The other thing I wanted to revisit a little bit is when apologists respond to the argument that Paul didn't have a conception of an earthly historical Jesus and that Paul's Jesus was, for the most part, a supernatural conception. A celestial Jesus, yes. The apologists will say things like, what about the institution of the Eucharist where Paul talks about Jesus's body being given for us? What does a close examination of the Eucharist institution reveal about the kind of Christ Paul believed in? This is something I didn't really learn that much about until recently, like the subtleties in the Greek, like yeah. the wording of the Supper of the Lord. Yeah, absolutely. Here's the thing. Whenever Paul talks about his Jesus, we have all kinds of things read into that as if, and some of them are really just flatly ridiculous. That, oh, well, Paul knew that Jesus did this. And it's like, uh, that's not what he said even. Uh, so, And I talk about that a lot in Jesus Smithing in Action and in Nails. The most interesting thing is people tend to gravitate and say, oh, well, he did give us the Lord's Supper. And when you talk about what he actually says about the Lord's Supper, problems start immediately popping up. For one thing, he says, oh, this is our Lord's Supper, by the way, not those other tables of demons that you can't go, you, you know, that's their Lord's Supper. This is our Lord's Supper. And we have all kinds of information about the pagan Lord's Suppers that existed at the time. So that's not new to Christianity. He also acts like no one would know about this night 
unless he was telling them about it, which is very weird if this happened with Jesus and the 12 apostles. And again, he never remotely says anything like, you know, Jesus' 12 apostles and these guys are Jesus' 12 apostles. And the word he used, the Greek says something to the effect of, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus did this and this. The, the word for betrayed there is peridodomi. It can mean betrayed, that's true, but Paul never uses it in that sense anywhere else. And he constantly uses it in the sense of delivered up. Delivery, this was handed down to us. This God delivered up Jesus for us. Um, that sense of delivered and handed over is what the word more appropriately means. So then there's better words for betrayal that he could have used. So much so that some scholars have wondered if what Paul was actually saying was, on the night that Jesus delivered this message to me, here's what he said. And that's not even the only possible explanation it could be. It could be on the night that God handed over Jesus to this. But in all these instances, and there's several instances of what it could mean, none of them mean betrayed. And it doesn't seem like anybody else in early Christianity had the idea that Jesus had 12 disciples and one of them betrayed him. We never see any hint of that until after the Gospels are written. And Mark picked up on this ambiguous word and ran with it with a fresh new idea for theological reasons and allegorical reasons. And I talk about that more in the book. That's a lot to unpack in, in over. Oh, yeah. But uh, but yeah, it, but it's fascinating. And it, it's also one of the few places where Paul seems to be talking about something that actually happened on earth. Most of the time, he's talking about what you know, Jesus whispers in his ears from space and what he was doing at the dawn of creation and, you know, how he speaks to him through scripture and how people would never know about him. But now that the son is being revealed through the spirit and through preachers like him. Wrapping this all up in one neat package, some listeners might wonder, even if they accept that, okay, I officially have questions now. And obviously I'm referring to believers here, any who might be listening, or even just people who haven't thought about this, uh, who don't believe in the legend of Jesus, might be asking themselves, okay, there are definitely questions to be asked about where this idea of Jesus came from. If he was not a historical figure, where did this character Christ come from? And like, where did it originate? Was it all the Gnostic and mystery religions that sure. kind of culminated in the Christ character rather than the religious right, conception right. of Christ first and then all these other groups? Sure. And we've kind of touched on this already, but one thing to keep in mind is in the beginning, there wasn't Christianity. There were Christianities, and there were mm -hmm. diverse movements, and all of them had their own gospel. And it wasn't until a century or so later that people even thought to collect all these scriptures and make them match up with each other in a New Testament. By then, the cat was already well out of the bag. And I want to make sure, too, that all this stuff we're saying, all these problems with early Christianity, these are all true whether there was a Jesus or not, whether Christianity is true or not. I have no problem saying that Christianity is false and Jesus is not a real figure, just from what I know, but I just don't see the point of looking for a real figure when you see how much allegorical... It seems like we're totally barking up the wrong tree if we try to look for a real person underneath all these layers of allegory and evidence of competing Christianities saying different things about him and who he was and what he did and who his friends were. And that's not counting the fact that there's so much forgery in early Christianity. Um, mm -hmm. Bart Ehrman makes a huge point that 
one of the most remarkable things about early Christianity is the link that it was forged. But again, these aren't just atheists talking about this. These are things that secular biblical historians, objective biblical historians, can more or less agree on, even if they don't agree on who or what Jesus was. We agree about the troubled state of our sources. Yeah, if I'm going to add my closing statements, there's a lot to say right now, to a uh, lot to cram down in just a few minutes. I mean, Absolutely. listeners are going to have some questions, but we're going to have to encourage them not to take our, our word for it. We, ha- Absolutely. we want them to... Uh, Look into our themselves. As far as Nathan's last question, like there's so many different ways that Jesus' character that we know came to be. Earlier, we touched on Mark and how we don't know exactly who authored the Gospel of Mark. We just call him Mark. Right. But we know that they were educated in Greek. And we can see some hints of where the Jesus character came to be. Like there are so many connections between Jesus and Odysseus from Homer's epic stories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love the example of Jesus going to sea in an area that has no sea. <laughs> yes, the Galilee. Yeah, yeah. That, you notice in Mark's gospel, Jesus is around large bodies of water a lot. People were noticing this. Way back in the second century, in the third century, they're saying, hey, wait a second, There's, you can't have a hurricane on the Sea of Gaza. It's a lake. Yeah, the last thing I would want to raise, and then I guess that's it, is this common objection we hear. This is like a, a knee-jerk reaction to whenever anyone hears mythicism. It's quite often the, uh, the claim, would Jesus' disciples die for a lie? And to that, I would say, (laughs) just like Jesus Christ, we don't have solid proof that any of them died. Like, take, for instance, Peter. Peter being crucified upside down. The only source that mentions that mentions it 200 years later after the fact. It's all hearsay. Yep. And, you know, there's so many rabbit holes on that we can go on. But, yeah, you make the great point. You know, if Gandalf wasn't real, why did Frodo take the ring to Mordor? You know, you could make that same argument, too. I do want to say something because we usually get that kind of who would die for a lie from Christians who have read Lee Strobel and Josh McDowell. And if you believe their arguments, you are their rightful prey because they put out bad arguments to make Christians feel good about Christianity. That's a whole show right there we could talk about because there are some bad arguments to be made out there. Again, whether Christianity is true or not, whether there was a real Jesus or not, those are shitty, shitty arguments. And don't embarrass yourself by arguing them with an atheist because they know better. Before we wrap up this podcast, I'm not sure how soon Nathan wants to wrap it up, but I have one joke for International Blasphemy Day. Awesome. Let's hear it. I believe I heard this for Robert M. Price. <laughs> oh, this should be very good. Price always wondered why Jesus was never referred to as Jesus the Bastard. Ha! Mary was married to Joseph, but Jesus was God's son. Okay, so that's adultery. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that's the best I got. Jesus the Bastard. That's probably what we should call him from now on. <laughs> from now on. <laughs> My favorite version of Jesus is Humperdoo from the AMC series Preacher. Oh, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that's such a good uh, show. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to think of any good blasphemous whatnot I have, and I'm totally blanking, which I, I'm ashamed of myself that I, I should be just full of blasphemy all the time. I think we've done plenty of blasphemy already. And you know what? Sometimes facts are the most blasphemous thing you can say. 
in wrapping up, where can people uh, find you and your work, buy your books and whatnot, David? And I hope they do, especially Christians out there. I love it when they read the book. On the internet, wherever books are sold, the books are nailed. Ten Christian myths that show Jesus never existed at all. And then there's a three-part volume of Jesus mything in action, and that's part of the series, The Complete Heretic's Guide to Western Religion. But all you really need to know is Jesus mything in action, volume one, two, and three. You can find me on Facebook really easily. You can find me on the YouTube where I'm giving talks like the Sex and Violence in the Bible talk and talk on the Mormons, any number of other blasphemous whatnot. If you have questions, feel free to contact me. Great. And I'd love to have you back on the show sometime in the future to talk about weird-ass sex Bible stuff. (laughs) (laughs) That's my jam. (laughs) Thank you, David Fitzgerald, for joining us. Thank you, Wolf, for being my guest co-host. Thank you for listening to A Leap of Doubt. If you liked what you heard, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. If you want to get involved in the kinds of discussion this show is meant to encourage, you can find the official discussion group on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash a leap of doubt. You can follow me and get in touch with me on Twitter, where my username is at thenatheist. Feedback and criticisms are always welcome. The opening clip is an excerpt from the audiobook God is Not Great by Christopher Hitchens, courtesy of Hachette Audio, text copyright 2007 by Christopher Hitchens, audio production copyright 2007, Hachette Audio, used with permission. The opening and ending music is Jade by Esther Nicholson and is used under license. The audio was edited by Rich Lyons of the Living After Faith podcast. If you enjoy the work I do, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon at patreon.com slash a leap of doubt.